Welcome to Brain and Event. We are joined by Galen Barry from Iona College, and we're going to be finding out what's actually true and what's the best way to find out what's true. Galen, do you want to start with a thought experiment? So imagine you are a scientist and you're told that you can best contribute to knowledge in the future by pursuing projects that you don't actually believe in the moment. Should you do it? Uh, should you sacrifice, for example, your personal ideas about how a good thinker, an individual good thinker should behave? for the sake of knowledge uh, for the community at large. So how is it possible that you being stubborn and pursuing something that you believe is false as a scientist, how would that lead to the advancement of science overall? It turns out that having all the individual scientists within a scientific community pursuing truth for truth's sake and allocating belief and resources on the basis of things like evidence is actually uh, going to be terrible for the advancement of science. There are many mechanisms uh, by which disagreement within the scientific community is actually uh, a very good thing. So here's one example. Suppose you have a minority view that at a given time has considerably less evidence in support of it. Perhaps the mechanisms by which it's supposed to work are unclear, and each individual scientist thinks that a given view, the dominant view, is most likely to be true. If everyone allocated belief and resources to this one view, there would be no view waiting in the wings. And if there's no view waiting in the wings, nobody is likely going to abandon the original dominant view. They're just going to hold on to a ship as it's sinking as has been the case in many points in history of science. To give one example, in the mid, early and mid part of the 20th century, this was true of plate tectonics, a theory of plate tectonics. It was advanced in the early part of the 20th century, but seen as implausible for many decades because uh, we weren't aware of any fault lines. We didn't have a mechanism by which plates moved, especially very, very large plates. And so the dominant view at the time and the one with the most evidence to support of it was the idea that land masses only change vertically rather than horizontal, like vertically, for example, through volcanoes, not horizontally through uh, shifting of plates as well. But many scientists kept pursuing this theory of plate tectonics for decades and into the 60s, they discovered some smoking guns, which pointed to the truth of plate tectonics and identified a mechanism by which huge land masses could move. And so, Within about a decade, scientific opinion changed and the majority view and almost the unanimous view is that plate tectonics was true. But if there hadn't have been these minority scientists who, you know, recognized that the view as they were pursuing it was implausible and unsupported, it would never have had a chance to sort of step in and find these smoking guns in the first place. So it might be the case when we've got a, a situation where we're not sure what's true. We say there's this phenomenon that's occurring in the world and we're not sure why it occurs, that we should have these different camps, a whole bunch of different teams who come up with different hypotheses to try and find out an underlying reason for it. And as you say, we don't know which one will wind up being true. There might be a bits of evidence that are unknown to us and will be unknown to us for some time. But once they become known, they'll help fix the, the jigsaw puzzle. And so people who are working in the far regions who look like lunatic fringe people might actually be stumbling on the truth, and it's going to be hell of a useful for us that they were doing that arcane research. Is there some value in getting people to hold on to the view which we think has already been falsified? How much diversity do you want to keep going? 
I'm not sure there is a codifiable answer to that. So some formula that is based on you plug in a certain amount of evidence for the various views and consideration that outcrops some allocation of how many people should adhere to a given view. But I think in general, you're always going to want some people supporting a minority view, even if it's seen as incredibly implausible by other scientists. Because as you pointed out, evidence bases shift and we want to not close off avenues prematurely. So philosophers of science sometimes talk about the division of epistemic or cognitive labor. We don't want all our eggs in one basket, for example. We want a fair amount of diversity so that we can uh, have backup plans, so that we can have uh, different searches for different bits of evidence, all the good things that come with a diversity of views. So an interesting question then is, do you see scientific progress more as a command economy where you've got some central scientific agency that's saying we need to allocate a certain percentage of scientists to hold bizarre views uh, which very unlikely to be the case but might turn out to be true in the future they sort of back up views in case our dominant uh, paradigms turn out to be wrong or is it something else or not a command economy of of scientific knowledge is it more like a free market where individuals are incentivized for some reason to hold bizarre views, but they're high risk views because they're unlikely to turn out to be true. Uh, and yet they're incentivized to do so. How would that work in sort of a, a more free market economy of ideas? Yeah. So that's a good question. Most people think that something like the invisible hand going on, that it's much more efficient to have people, science, individual scientists choose themselves, which programs to pursue. One reason being they are going to have different skills. Some scientific skills are more conducive to normal science. That is, for example, the dominant view and the division of questions within that view and sort of the under labor that takes place for decades for a given research program. Others are more maverick-like. They're uh, better thinking outside the box. And people in general are going to have a better sense of which one they are. So if there is a central decision-making body uh, that decides how to divide scientific or epistemic labor is going to be less efficient than uh, a system where people can choose to pursue which program uh, they will. The key point being the driving force for getting individuals to pursue the programs that they're going to pursue is the motivation for something like credit. Credit is allocated largely based on originality. And so if individual scientists choose a view that a lot of other people share, they're never going to get much credit for the things they contribute to it. And so you can have a much better chance of getting credit for being original if you have fewer people on your team, so to speak. And so that is a driving force. Uh, you have to balance the chances you're going to be right with the chances you're going to uh, get credit for being novel, but that is a driving force for uh, creating an ideal division of epistemic labor. So in some senses, we've seen this play out over the pandemic. You know, you had a hunt for vaccines and the idea wasn't to put all of our eggs in one basket. It was to say, well, let's let a hundred companies do this and there'll be a race. And some of them are going to use some technology and some are going to use others. There'll be a whole range of different experiments that go on. And it seemed like certain vaccines were going to be really, really useful. So for example, in South Africa, the vaccine that we signed up for initially was the AstraZeneca vaccine partly because it was very cheap and it didn't require specific, particularly cold refrigeration. 
And then it turned out that a new variant came and the government took the view the vaccine wasn't going to be particularly efficacious. And so it was really useful that there was a backup in the form of Pfizer. So it seems like when you're dealing with real world problems, having a variety of different you know, answers in place is very important. What's interesting about this, and I think it's useful to have this analogy between a kind of command economy and a and a free market economy, that there are going to be financial incentives at play, but there's also risks. So if you take a view, which is we're going to do something that no one else is doing, that can either be to your massive benefit because you wind up um, with a product that works, even if you had a low chance of it succeeding, or to your massive detriment in the sense that it fails and now you're out of pocket. And so I suppose the question is, when we're thinking about science, how much uh, interference do we want in this free market? So there's a sense in which those who are who are capable of absorbing a failure are going to be, other things being equal, more willing to pursue a risky strategy. So a grad student, for example, likely shouldn't uh, try and pursue a wild, seemingly implausible view on the off chance that they you know, win the epistemic lottery and, and prove something unexpected. So there is a sort of natural tendency for grad students to begin their careers in a rather scientifically conservative way because grad students uh, are often attached to a lab and things, the research programs that can generate and create labs are those that are working to an extent. So I think just the, just the invisible hand here is creating a safety net, so to speak, for making sure we have at least a significant number of programs that are working. So it seems like whether this insertion of scientists who disagree with a dominant view is going to be effective and helpful is going to depend on how certain we are that the dominant paradigm is correct. So suppose it is the case that the dominant paradigm is correct. Say we've worked out uh, what gravity is, let's just say. I don't think we have, but let's just say we've worked out what gravity is. Then it seems like every scientist who works on a competing theory is doing a disservice to knowledge. Um, and they might even know that because suppose the dominant view is just so well established. It's just, it's perhaps not proven, but, but really, really there's justified true belief that, that it's correct. It seems like everyone who's working in the opposite direction or in a different direction is doing a disservice to the pursuit of truth. I don't necessarily think a minority view can only contribute to the progress of science by having its chance of winning out. So oftentimes a given set of observations or a given set of data fit multiple theories. And so you might have two theories that make sense of the same observations A through C. And one is the dominant theory, the other is the minority theory. And the minority theory keeps saying to the dominant theory, look, I can explain the exact same things as you. What can you do that I can't? So even though it's not accepted as the better theory, we'll suppose, it still drives the dominant theory to look for other uh, observations that it can make sense of. That is, it tries to push it or ends up pushing it in the direction of a more unified theory. So for example, one thing that was really powerful, one thing that was greatly in favor of Newton's theory of gravitation is that it made sense of a lot of different disparate phenomena. For example, uh, it could predict the uh, orbits of the planets, but also the tides, the location of the moon, the, the law of free fall. So each of these individually, in many cases at least, was handled well by competing theories. So famously, the geocentric model of, of the solar system got the calendar more or less right. So one thing 
that minority views can do is improve dominant views, right views will assume by putting pressure on them to add new points in their favor. So I think even if we have sort of minority views of gravity, to use your example, that never end up showing themselves to be true, they could still play a role by putting pressure on the dominant view to, to improve. So John Stuart Mill has a view in favor of free speech, which is that you ought to allow views that you disagree with in the marketplace of ideas, even if they're false, because they help you sharpen your sword. They remind you of why your view is actually true, uh, and they provide a challenge for your view. And maybe sometimes that minority view, that offensive view, will turn out to actually be true, uh, and then you can change your mind and you're no longer burdened by holding a false belief. We've had interesting incidents on the show of, we had Stephen Kirshner on our show, and Stephen's career has been about being someone who holds minority controversial views about almost anything. So he has uh, written a book on why we owe no gratitude towards dead American soldiers. He's written arguments in, in favor of the moral permissibility of slavery, the idea that if someone could consent to being a slave, that it wouldn't be wrong. The episode that we hosted him on was on adult child sex, uh, and then he gives examples where he thinks it may be permissible uh, if the child is willing. Very, very controversial views. And part of what Stephen's agenda is, is to say there are a bunch of mainstream positions that people hold. You can be a utilitarian, you can be a Kantian, and he thinks that there are certain implications that are going to follow from that view that are deeply counterintuitive. And a lot of his project is pointing out to people the bullets that they have to bite um, in these views. Now, Stephen has had a very, very hard time as of late for expressing these views and is currently suspended by his university. And there've been many calls for him to be fired, many calls for him to be killed. You know, he's suffered an enormous amount of abuse. Is there some value in this sort of realm of moral philosophy of having people who express views that are really extreme, really strange, or, or should they just be told uh, to shut up uh, and that we should burn their books and we can just focus on what we all know to be true and moral? Yeah, so I think in the case of moral philosophy, there's an additional complication. So in the case of science, we can think of the benefits of a diversity of viewpoints and ideal division of labor as just in terms of the consequences. It's going to improve views or it's going to keep views that were less considered that turn out to be right on the table, etc. But with moral philosophy, there's also additional complications, for example, which views might it be unvirtuous to even consider? Which views might it be immoral to even take seriously? And I'm not saying, you know, the ones Kirshner has defended fall in that camp. They might, they might not. But I think this is a consideration that is present when it comes to which moral views you consider that isn't present when it comes to which scientific views you consider. So I'm not so sure. I mean, one of the classic objections to the nuclear project was that if you get a group of people that are incredibly smart, like Oppenheimer and Einstein in a room together, they're gonna to come up with something that could end humanity. Oppenheimer's famous line that, I am death, the destroyer of worlds, after they you know, seen the first bomb go off, that there is a view that scientists just shouldn't be allowed to do certain kinds of experiments because it could end very badly for us. Not only is it that they're holding vicious ideas in mind, you can imagine scientists that are doing gain-of-function research on uh, viruses they have in labs, this sort of stuff could uh, lead to catastrophic circumstances. So maybe having these fringe views and this diversity of different things could be the thing that ends humanity. Shouldn't we just all stick in our lane, do the stuff that we all know works? 
You make yeah, it so sound like like Einstein and, and Oppenheimer definitely did the right thing, Mark, that it's like 100% sure, but there's definitely controversy around that. No, no, I think there is. There's genuine controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so, it's, so I think even there, there's a bit of an, this analogy because there the, the disastrous thing is still an effect, you know, nuclear holocaust or what have you. But in the case of moral philosophy, yes, Perhaps there is some possible scenario in which the consideration of views like Kirchner's makes someone more willing to engage in pedophilia. But the kind of moral consideration I have in mind is something more immediate, just the entertaining of the idea that pedophilia might might be uh, acceptable. Yeah, but you, stuff- you, you're trying to point to like some sort of self-defeating mechanism in it, mm-hmm. right? That if you're doing philosophy of morality, you're trying to pursue moral truths that are good and and enhance the world in a positive way but the very consideration of certain ideas might do the opposite yeah and this is actually a nice segue to my interest in some of the stuff about the division of epistemic labor for example there is a reasonable consensus within social epistemology at least those people who work on these topics that what is good for a community what helps a community be rational isn't always what is good for an individual to be rational and vice versa what is good for an individual to be rational often makes for group irrationality so when you decide how to produce knowledge as a group you might say all right let's have a bunch of individual uh, group members form their beliefs or contribute to this community and based on grubby incentives for example the incentive for fame or the incentive for money incentive for status etc so here we have knowledge being produced at the group so it's a rational rational procedure for the group to allocate credit in this way but the individuals are acting somewhat intellectually viciously likewise these examples have already gone through with uh, diversity we wouldn't want to assign to a community for example with every individual forming their beliefs or or making their decisions based on things like evidence and truth, because then you're often going to get everyone lining up with the same view and that's often a disaster. So one of my interests is to what extent does playing your role in an epistemic community, which is often letting incentives move you, picking out one role that helps contribute to the community at large, to what extent does playing this part have some negative effects on us as individuals. For example, does it undermine our ability to be virtuous thinkers? Does it create somewhat of a system of hypocrisy where we teach our students to follow the evidence uh, wherever it leads, but in our own research, we're being stubborn, driven by status, choosing views for the sake of novelty rather than for the sake of truth. So I think this is a this is a question, especially in philosophies, that I think philosophers consider themselves, rightly or wrongly, to be models of virtuous thinking uh, in some way. I think this is a, a question that's that's uh, disappointingly under-discussed. And I think it's really worth discussing. But before we get there, I struggle to even buy into the terms of the problem. So I just don't know what it means for a group to have knowledge. I don't get that. Good. So the idea here is something that attaches to an individual's mental states. And groups, do they have mental states? There are people who think that they do. For example, uh, maybe the U.S. has intentions with regards to NATO and Russia at the moment. So perhaps, you know, we can attach knowledge to group mental states in that way. But even if we don't want to go for something like an autonomous group mental state, we could still perhaps cash out group knowledge as information that when the group produces 
is such that someone who wanted to could make it knowledge for themselves. So right now, for example, you can have knowledge about the theory of plate tectonics. Um, you just go and you read about it and whatever you come to believe it and it's true. You will then personally have knowledge about something that a group, namely a group of scientists, group of geologists produce. So I think we can either, I think we can be neutral about what it means for a group to have knowledge and say either, oh, it, groups themselves can have things like states, mental states, or we could just say, all right, groups can produce circumstances in which individuals on the basis of what the groups did can come to have knowledge for themselves. But that's, that's interesting because it, it raises some possibly contradictory situations. So right now, if I want to learn about a particular controversial issue in American politics, I could go onto Fox News or onto CNN, and I might get very different sets of knowledge or sets of beliefs that, that are imported into my mind. So in that sense, it seems like I'm part of multiple groups simultaneously. Would, would that be correct? Yeah. So in that case, I wouldn't say whatever is produced by a group counts as knowledge. So sometimes what's produced by a group can be antithetical to knowledge. So group knowledge is not just information produced by a group, but you know, information produced by a group that's reliable and had has enough evidential support, blah, 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 whatever those extra conditions are. Yeah, I gather on that view, it's not possible to have contradictory knowledge. If we think that there is some external state of affairs, which is true, uh, and we can go and find out what that is, you can have a structure in society which best gets you there. So you're uncovering these artifacts of truth and you know, having a range of different teams do that work might be the best way for individuals to find out what's actually true. So on, on this on this question about how philosophers conduct themselves, as you say, it seems that there's a, a quest for novelty. Jason holds a particularly novel view, which is that groups don't exist. And uh, we had a conversation with Brian Leiter when we had him on the show. And, uh, you know, Jason said to him, you know, I don't think law exists either. We're talking about law. And uh, Leiter says, you know, I don't find any of this surprising. He said, it just is the case that the way we've designed uh, the academy is such that all possible positions will eventually be held by someone because that's how you get a job. You know, if you hold the mainstream view, well, you know, why should we hire you? Someone else already holds that view. And so you wind up with this plethora of positions. Now, what's interesting is I think there's some people that do that quite self-consciously. In other words, they go, I need to find something. One of our guests, Thad Metz, for example, 20 years ago, started writing some work on African ethics, this idea that maybe we could have a rivaling moral system to the standard ones, to virtue ethics, to Cantonism, to utilitarianism, grounded in this value of Ubuntu. And he says, look, myself, but I want to see if I can do this research and unearth this project and it'll be novel and interesting. And during the course of all of this unearthing, he started to believe it. He was like, you know what, actually, I think I'm an Ubuntuist and he's just produced a, a book now called Relational Moral Theories. And so it might be the case that people do it really only for the sake of novelty to kind of, you know, open up new fields. And sometimes they believe their own bullshit and that might be a good thing or a bad thing. Or they they don't believe at all in, in, the, in the research they're doing. It's just useful for these other grabby incentives like prestige and you know being recognized by your peers for doing something a bit different. Yeah, there are lots of different ways to interpret how incentives drive us to novelty. And so I could just paint, paint a few. It could be that the incentives to novelty just make us motivated to publish things we already believe. 
So back, you know, in the sixties, you could get tenure with one article or fewer. And so you didn't need to write as many novel things. So perhaps the idea is we have as many novel thoughts and just now we need to get them in print in order to get jobs and keep jobs. Another view is that, and I think this is the, perhaps the most worrisome, is that the incentives create the belief. That is, we're pushed in a direction based on the incentives for novelty, and that has some too direct effect on what we believe. Another potential possibility is that what we publish isn't always something we believe, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. So in order to contribute to an episodic community, you don't need to believe the things you're defending and publishing. Rather, you need to do something that's more like a quasi-belief, something like accept what's called accept them or endorse them or uh, act as if they're true. You can still have the same effect on communal knowledge production without belief. So in that case, perhaps uh, a truly novel position is one that a person could say, maybe I don't even believe this. Maybe I'm not sure if I believe it. Maybe I positively disbelieve it, but I'm going to act as if it's true in order to play my uh, part in a epistemic group. So I think the question is, which of these is most plausible for one? Obviously, it might depend on the case, but also are any of them worrisome? I'm worried by several of them. I can get to that in a minute, but I think I think we need to first decide what is actually happening when people defend novel views. I remember when I was a postgrad student, and I think I was in my master's year, and I was studying under my supervisor, Mark Leon, uh, who was an incredibly good supervisor throughout. He he said to me, I, I, I said to him once, well, you know, philosophy is the pursuit of truth. And he said, well, no, no, it's not, not in practice. He said, in practice, it's it's an intellectual game. He said, it's a game of entertaining possibilities. That sounds more similar to the view you've just given. But I remember at the time feeling very perturbed by this, that there was something noble about philosophy, that philosophy was the pursuit of truth. And when you subtracted that, it was no longer noble. I think that's exactly right. So think of the reasons people have done philosophy or defended philosophy, from Socrates to contemporary defenses of the humanities, philosophy in particular, is the idea that philosophy aims at knowledge. And so that it's a good to do philosophy or to have philosophy in universities is because it aims at, no aims at knowledge, with truth being an essential part of knowledge. So I agree that we should at least have this initial reaction of worry when we're told Actually, what you're doing in academic philosophy, at least, is playing your part in this game, which, you know, combined with other people playing the same, playing in the same game, different slightly different roles, produces potentially, if, if philosophy works like science does, knowledge for people down the road. So I think we find ourselves in a situation uh, like that. I'm not saying it's necessarily true of a lot of philosophy, but if it is, we find ourselves in a situation of something like alienation that uh, we come into philosophy with this concern for truth, wanting to figure figure out to the extent we're able, what's true, what reasons can be given for what views, but then we end up just contributing, not by coming to the truth for ourselves or even defending views we believe, but defending views that will get us a job and help us to keep it. And so we have like these weird dual lives, I think, as a result. I wonder whether the way that we approach philosophy on this channel is not the perfect way. So the way we approach philosophy is we don't get extra credit when we espouse a view that's bizarre or false or different. We are simply trying to elicit the best possible version of our guest's view 
by prodding them with objections that we don't necessarily hold to be to be successful. So there it really is the pursuit of truth or perhaps the pursuit of the best version of our guest's position, mm-hmm. but we do so in a way that involves necessary disagreement. Yeah, so I think, so one, one, thing, you, one thing you said is nice there that the pursuit of truth by itself is kind of like too unwieldy, that we need some constraints. And so one constraint might be, here's a view, what's the best version of this view that we can defend? But secondly, I think you raised a nice point what would philosophy look like if it were more truth aimed? That is, if it if it were aimed simply at truth and knowledge. I don't think if we care about truth and knowledge for individuals, for example, in, improving uh, what I know, improving what you know, I don't think philosophy is currently constituted uh, with the arms race for more and more publications uh, and the need for novelty on a much grander scale and the unlikelihood that people actually believe uh, all these different novel things. I don't think that is the way to go, but it's hard to imagine alternatives. I think one alternative uh, is something like public philosophy, where originality is not the end all, that is you can do it without being original. In fact, there isn't always really a scorekeeping of who said what, so that we can keep track of who is original and and who isn't. so one privilege I have being at a institution with lower research demands is I'm not under the pressure to publish multiple times every year and to always be working on what can I say that's new? What can I say that's new? So I have the freedom to defend what I believe or to defend what I think is true and to organize my philosophical life around these sort of rather traditional ideals that were at least at one point associated with philosophy. Yeah, it's interesting to me that you could have different kinds of incentive structures in different places. So as you say, if you're a a research institution and there's a limited amount of space in journals, that you're incentivized to produce something that's novel, even if you don't believe in it. As you say, if you're in a teaching institution, your incentive might be to try and be able to clearly elucidate ideas to students. um, And those ideas might very well be ideas that everybody tends to believe in. They're going to be the the mainstream views. If I think about what we do on our show, it's we're trying to elicit, as Jason says, views from our guests in a way that's as clear as possible because, you know, part of our audience are professional philosophers and part of our audience, you know, people with an interest in philosophy, but not necessarily a background in it. And so we create an incentive for our guests to express their views without jargon. And some of the views that I think have come out on the show are quite weird and wonderful. Um, There've been a number of views that have surprised us. Part of the mechanism for finding out these views as well is for us to generally adopt a strategy of disagreement, to first ask questions to try and find out what the view is so that we can grapple with it, and then to put up as many objections as we can, and to do that in an, in an improvisational way. The show runs without a script. It's improv theater. We're thinking on our feet, and we're all going to say things that we might uh, later disagree with or didn't quite work. But in that sort of uh, messy process, new ideas pop out and we've had a number of guests say to us, you know, I never thought about that before. That's something I'd like to work on further. And it seems like there's value in being able to do philosophy in a variety of different settings if you care about this broader project of creating knowledge. Yeah, and I definitely do think disagreement is essential for producing knowledge for you know reasons you've mentioned when you cited Mill, for instance, in your examples just now. So imagine, for example, I never confronted someone who disagreed with me. I would have very simplistic philosophical views. So disagreement is essential for, for knowledge. I think that the issue with academic incentives is there's incentive to disagree even when you don't disagree. Whereas on a show like this, 
the disagreement can bubble up more organically and play its role in sharpening others' views, presenting objections, etc. But it's not this sort of artificial push towards disagreement that that you find in, in academic philosophy. Because I think with science, you know, this is somewhat of a little bit simple-minded view of science. Reality is going to push back against too much disagreement for disagreement's sake. Uh, there's only so much room for wiggling your way out of objections that at some point you just got to confront reality. But there's a lot more wiggle, wiggle room in philosophy. So I remember this passage from Tim Maudlin's book on the metaphysics of physics, in which he says, like, there's always room for one more qualification, one more rejection of an intuition, one more different weighting of considerations. So in philosophy, you can always say something to get away from an objection. I mean, not always, but most cases. And I think that that has the risk of, of turning us into what are basically sophists. Yeah, it, it seems like in philosophy, the way the risk presents itself is that we have to bite bigger and bigger bullets or more and more bullets as our position becomes more counterintuitive. We've had guests on the show that do this incredibly well. <laughs> like they just munch on those bullets. Uh, one of them is Stephen Kirshner, but there've been a number of guests, generally utilitarians. Uh, utilitarians relish bullets. They're metal eaters and they, they just, they take on those bullets. Mark loves to push me into biting bullets because I'm a utilitarian. And you, you might've gotten the sense that I hold some unusual views. I, I think the challenge for philosophers is to, is to come up with novel views, but not bite more bullets than they have to. Not to be a bullet relisher. It's to bite necessary bullets for your position to be true at all, but to soften your position where it could be softened in a way that doesn't harm your underlying ethos. It doesn't harm your underlying push, your main thrust, your main thesis. And so it makes the position a little bit more palatable for your opponent. Yeah. And I think the increase in bullet biting has something to do with the fact that we're deeper and deeper into the dialectic as philosophy has progressed through time, all the low-hanging fruit is gone. And so in order to be novel, you have to get further into the weeds. And that often involves either making objections to others or if you're on the receiving end, biting the bullets from those objections. So I think this is just natural given that the space for originality is, it's not getting smaller because there's going to be more, but it happens in smaller and smaller steps. We've spoken thus far that that people are incentivized to hold quite strange out their views, but that there's generally a kind of orthodox thing that they're swimming against. It seems that there are certain traditional views that have now become unutterable on pain of death. And I can think of uh, two that are kind of related. So the one was among a, a survey of psychologists, they asked them um, to enter a public survey and express their views on whether there were two sexes uh, or more sexes. And they all said, uh, no, sex is on a spectrum. Uh, there's a variety of sexes. And then they asked them privately, you know, what do you believe and why did you say what you said on the public thing? And they said, well, I of course don't believe that view. It's an outrageous view. There are only two sexes. But all my colleagues uh, would think very poorly of me if I said that. So that's why I lied. And all people said the same thing. So everyone had a collective belief that their colleagues would punish them and no one believed, you know, the strange idea. And the other one is, we recently had Rajan Alwani on the show, and he's published the eighth edition of The Philosophy of Sex. And he's got two essays on sexual orientation that are in there. One of them expresses the traditional view that sexual orientation can be expressed in terms of homosexuality, bisexuality, and heterosexuality. The notion that if you are of one sex and are attracted to the opposite sex, you're a heterosexual, 
and you know the other views follow. And then he included another view, which is the notion that all of those terms are totally and utterly bogus, that we should be describing sexual orientation in terms of someone's attraction towards a combination of both sex and gender, and that it's irrelevant what your particular sex and gender are. We should just be looking at the targets. Now, the, the latter view is an incredibly radical view. It would you know, upend many sort of social structures that we have in place. It wouldn't make sense to talk about gay rights movements, etc. And Raja was quite publicly attacked for including the first essay in the book, um, The Ordinary Orthodox View, and it was described as a hateful view even, and that people were going to boycott buying the book. And they wanted prior editions of the book because they didn't have this orthodox view in it. And it seems like there's this funny thing that goes on in academia where almost every um, ordinary person holds a view, but that's just not reflected in academia. So that the minority and majority views are inverted because there's a different incentive structure there, which is, I imagine, to be as politically correct as possible, or to pick up whatever the fad is as possible, and to show a virulent adherence to it. And I think we see it in the social science and we see it in philosophy, but I imagine this, this will happen in the hard sciences as well. And that seems like a way of perverting our knowledge production. Yeah, so... It might just be a separate set of incentives where we have incentives to disagree for the sake of originality. And then we have incentives to avoid uh, positions that are anathema and sometimes those interact. But I think there's actually a way in which sometimes those incentives might amount to one of the same incentive. So an interesting result from the independence thesis, this is the thesis that collective and individual rationality operate independently of one another, is that it's good for maintaining diverse viewpoints that they have little interaction between them so that, you know, one view can develop independently of the influence of the other and vice versa. So one thing that might be happening is this is just one instance of that where, for example, a group of academics who only talk amongst each other coalesce on a view that, for example, sex is on a spectrum, but that this is actually part of a more general epistemic incentive, namely to form little pods because that allows for the development of, uh, of well-developed diverse views. So initially I thought maybe these are just separate influence, separate streams of influence, one more sort of political and more epistemic, but I think actually those can coincide that keeping politically separate communities can actually oddly perhaps be good for an epistemic community insofar as that's one mechanism by which diverse views are developed. And I think this is an empirical question. We can't figure that out from the armchair where the costs of the of these kinds of communities where certain views are anathema uh, are greater than any benefits that those communities allow for the developments with stink views. I think we'll just have to wait and see. So there's a fantastic science fiction series on television at the moment. It's on Apple TV. It's called Severance. And it explores this idea in a few ways. So the primary idea behind severance, the primary premise, is that people are able to sever or bifurcate their minds between when they're at work and when they're at play, so outside of work, so leisure mm -hmm. time. And when they arrive at work, they have no memories of who they are, where they were born, if they have a family, etc. They're completely different people when they're at work. And when they're outside of work, when they're outside of work, they cannot remember anything that happened at work. So they are severed. But what's interesting about severance is that within the office space where they work at this place called Lumen, there's these different departments and they're located on these impossibly difficult to navigate floors 
where there's all these alleyways and you can't reach other departments and you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to have any commerce with these other departments. And there's all these intergenerational myths because Lumen has been going for decades about how the other departments are evil and your department is the only good one. And these, th these different departments function totally independently. Um, I think for exactly this reason, I think the, this, the series is not complete, so I don't know the, the reason, but I think this is one of the plausible interpretations is that the different departments are working sometimes on overlapping projects, but in ways that they don't want to, the management don't want the different departments to infect each other's progress with. So it does seem like this very idea is explored in severance. Uh, we do quite a lot of philosophy of science fiction on this channel because I'm a science fiction writer and I really like how sci-fi is like a, a long form thought experiment that philosophers often try to deal with in short form and then more intellectually through their conceptual basis. I just thought it's an interesting expression of exactly this problem that you're discussing or the solution that you're discussing of separating out different camps and not having commerce between them as their ideas evolve. Yeah, and I think actually we see something similar with more traditional areas of disagreement in philosophy. So starting in like the 90s and 2000s, the, the epistemology of disagreement became a hot topic. This idea, how can people who are my intellectual peers or even my intellectual superiors believe things that are so different from what I believe, with religious views being the... Uh, one of the most common examples. One reason we have very smart philosophers who believe in God, for example, and very smart philosophers who don't, is that they grew up in very different situations, often growing up in religious families versus irreligious families. And so we have this situation where there's disagreement about a view. And I think the same basic idea can apply to say ethical theories. What kind of, what kind of family did you grow up? My influence, whether you're utilitarian, uh, virtue, ethicist, more Kantian, et cetera. So I think we have the situation where you have these camps within philosophy that we rarely see movement between. It's rare that you see a Kantian become utilitarian or vice versa. And one reason might be is because they spend a large part of their life in something like a philosophical silo. So Habermas developed this notion of a deliberative democracy. And the idea is that the deliberation happens at multiple levels. So, you know, he sort of thinks of, let's say, the lowest level at a coffee shop. You have people sharing an idea. Um, you might think about it kind of a political activist movement. So he thinks about like uh, environmentalists and you could be sitting, having coffee, thinking about it's a pity they don't use uh, recyclable cups at this coffee shop. Uh, and then maybe you form an organization and you care very much about recycling and everybody is a true believer on this question of recycling. And then you start airing your views more publicly and funding television shows that are pro-recycling. And eventually your ideas bubble up all the way to the legislature, but they don't bubble up on their own. You've got a variety of different groups in society that hold conflicting ideas, which, as you say, are solid off from each other. But once you get to this higher level of deliberation, you can then have this clash of ideas. So you can then have the argument between the different competing interests. And the idea is that people are then likely to produce, at this sophisticated level, policies which are actually tracking evidence and are, are for a, a collective good. Hobbes thinks you'd have some kind of we perspective that comes out. But it's not the case that you have internal disagreement in all these different groups. Uh, you could have everybody agreeing with each other, fortifying their ideas, and that the clash only happens at later stages. Yes, yeah, so I think I think that's often what happens at the level of, of theory choice. And for example, science, we have a bunch of individual re research programs that are all kind of bought into the, to themselves. And then we have to decide between them, but we couldn't even get those research programs 
the plant presentation in, unless there was a large consensus with, within the communities working on each one. So you discuss this potential solution or a good thing when different belief structures or different schools of thought or different paradigms kind of uh, isolate themselves um, from each other and they develop in silos. The, but overall, we want there to be a consensus one day at the end of time. So we want society to incorporate both of those uh, sets of, of beliefs in their purest forms, which they've developed in these silos, and then to integrate them and find out what's true and false in each and then integrate the best of both or reject one entirely. But the point is, it seems like as we silo the left and the right, specifically in, in the United States, it's very hard to imagine a future where this happens. It seems like they're becoming so polarized that it's so hard to hold any position that combines elements from each. Yeah, so uh, I remember this interesting example where you have, it was like a computer simulation where you have a group of geniuses which discover an invention at a much higher rate but don't communicate with each other versus a group of butterflies who discover inventions at a much lower rate but communicate those adventures with each other at a much higher rate. The geniuses are much smarter than the butterflies are sociable, but nonetheless, after a number of generations, the butterflies have been mentioned like 99% of the community, whereas the geniuses is only 18%. So the idea is the ability to communicate ideas and knowledge is much more powerful than something like intellect. And I think even though that there are benefits, at least in theory, to something like having some polarization because it allows for the development of discrete views that can be outweighed pretty easily if the communication uh, breaks down. So I think what we're seeing definitely in the, in the general community, but even in academia, the forces that are producing polarization are stronger than the credit incentives. And so my question is how, if this invisible hand is not producing the ideal incentives that the forces of polarization are, are stronger, how do you reverse that? And I, I don't have an answer. So there's another concern. It might be the case that at universities, everybody expects there to be some kooks floating around and that we say, well, this is just the way that the system works best. We have a bunch of people with fringe views. A friend of mine finished her PhD in biology at the Max Planck Institute. And I mentioned to her, oh, there's someone from that institute who holds these very strange views uh, on COVID. What's your response to that? And she said, well, that's just kind of what you have. You have these kooks who we keep around. I wouldn't take it too seriously. But the academic view on those kooks is going to be very different to the public view. So the public, you know, want to find out what's true. And they say, well, this person has these credentials. And when they're evaluating views, they often don't have the background knowledge to evaluate the truth of those views. It's more difficult for them to sort of work out, is this a good idea, is this a bad idea? And they might succumb to things that just sound more salacious, as you say, the stuff that's, you know, said by honey-tongue sophists. So is there a danger in allowing the plethora of uh, kooky views to float around? Because it might be the case, the general public will be persuaded to believe things that are false and dangerous. Yeah, good question. I think there definitely is a danger when there's very little science education in the non-scientific community. So if they community is completely scientifically literate, they just might see that someone's an expert and not recognize that they have a fringe view, that it's good to have fringe views, but you shouldn't just believe the fringe view because it's told to you. So I think, yeah, it can be very dangerous without that bridge between the academic sphere and the community. 